Welcome to a flowing font of truth and good and cash. If you're looking for the loot to toot a flute or cure a rash. If you're down on luck and need a buck, we'll fund you in a flash. If you'd like to write a piece on St. Denise or Delacroix. If you must research the Church of Christ or works of Myrna Loy. Don't be bashful, weave a stashful. Don't be timid, don't be coy. Barring market crashes, floods, or worse inflation. Barring fiscal flops or fierce devaluation. In a world where next to nothing comes for free. That you never thought you'd ever live to see. So divide a shrine to find philanthropy as the to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 1st, 2017. Happy Pumpkin Spice. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. You have your warm cup of pumpkin spice latte there with you? Ironically enough, <laughs> Balducci's ran out of pumpkin spice. I had to settle for hazelnut. Oh, first world problems. I, I know, really. <laughs> what, what will we do? <laughs> also with this is Michael Portantier, who hopefully has his pumpkin spice. He is a theater <laughs> reviewer and essayist and is the chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Pop. Uh, good morning, Michael. <laughs> good morning and happy October. Right. Happy October. It's like somebody flipped a switch and all of a sudden yesterday was cold. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> With us today, we have a very special guest. Alan Menken is joining us from tele- uh, via telephone, and we're going to talk this morning a little bit about uh, Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which is now available um, with Ghostlight Records. Alan, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning. Uh, you're just back from Europe on your trip. We really appreciate you. Uh, are you having a little jet lag, or are you doing okay there? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, we had a little for a day or so, but it's great to be back. <laughs> so, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater is now available uh, from Ghostlight, and uh, this was uh, what I was reading. This was your very first project. Uh, uh, this partner? was my very first produced musical. Oh, uh, really? To begin with, yeah. This was this was um, huge in my life, and of course, huge in, in Howard Ashman's life. And yes, it was my first project with with Howard. Um, and we met in 78, um, and he was looking for a composer to work on, um, Rosewater. He, Howard was then an artistic director of the WPA theater, a theater he had formed with Kyle Rennick and, um, Edward Ticci and Fresco. And, um, and they were producing a lot of things, but Howard really wanted to start to write musicals. He'd actually never written lyrics before that I know of. Wow. Maybe, maybe sort of, you know, in the comfort of his dorm room at college or something. But, um, so uh, it was a marriage that was put together by, actually by, by two people, um, Maury Yeston and Lehman Engel. Because Howard was looking for, you know, for a composer and 
at that point, I was exclusively a, um, a, a composer lyricist, uh, as was Maury. And Howard approached us, and he Maury said, "I, I don't, you know, I want to write both, but maybe Alan would want to do just music." And um, I was a huge Vonnegut fan, and uh, and the fact that he had a theater, that was it. I was, uh, I said, "Let me, let me in." All right. Now, approaching Vonnegut must have been something that was tremendously intimidating to you at that time. Uh, yeah, that was that was more Kyle, I guess Kyle running at the WPA, and at that time they had you know we had this thing called the Equity Showcase, mm. where you didn't actually get the rights, and you didn't have to put up much <laughs> of the way of money. There was there was the salaries were incredibly low, but the one thing you had to guarantee is that the actors got reviewed. You had to make whatever you're doing available for, you know, to be reviewed by the papers. And um, so we had the right to do an equity showcase. And that's it. We hadn't met Kurt uh, yet at all. You know, I think he was intrigued by, you know, what might this be. And um, we, we, we met him one day totally by surprise. He walked to rehearsal at, at the WPA. And we, I, I forget what number we were doing. Um, and... All right. Um, did he have any knowledge of musical theater? Uh, was he a fan? Did he ever go to see shows? I don't know. Actually, we uh -huh. never got into those discussions. Um, uh -huh. I think he was a little bemused by the whole process. <laughs> um, but he he walked into the rehearsal and looked around. I think we, maybe we were doing Look Who's Here, uh, 30 miles from the back of the area, Look Who's Here. Mm -hmm. But all I know is... <clears throat> He watched. We were, of course, like, gobsmacked. Yeah, yeah and, sure. And I remember he said, this is great, and he skipped out. Um, uh-huh. And uh, that was kind of wonderful. Would you and, say it was uh, evident to you pretty much from the beginning, uh, Alan? Was it evident to you and Howard the tone that this piece should take? Um, I think it was very evident to Howard. Okay. Howard had really was... You know, and it, I, when I first met with Howard, I was the person who had uh, sort of a career as both a composer and a lyricist. And I thought, well, you know, we'll sit down together and I'll help him out with with the lyric. Now, I should, but let me add parenthetically, the original lyricist was Dennis Green. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Howard had done a show with Dennis Green and Marsha Malamet at the Astor Place Theater. I think it was called Dream Stuff. Mm-hmm. And Howard was going to write the book and direct this, but not write lyrics. And gradually, Howard just could not. He wanted to write the lyrics, and then it became a co-lyrics situation. And then, and then gradually, of course, Howard's Howard's passion for writing lyrics and incredible gift took over. He came to me basically. I think he had a pretty pretty strong vision about what he wanted, mm. and um, we sat down together. And it it certainly felt like it was going to be drawn from from Americana. Uh, little hints of Charles Ives. Um, this and it's a this sort of eclectic brew of of American musical styles, um, but it developed as as we went along. All right. Now, um, <laughs> in terms of Vonnegut, um, here we are with this project. And did you find that people knew when you mentioned the name "God Bless You, Mr. Rose" right, right away that they knew what you were talking about, or was it obscure? It was somewhat obscure. I think people knew Breakfast of Champions. They knew uh, Cat's Cradle. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 
uh, it was known by by people who were Vonnegut fans, and and there were a lot of Vonnegut fans in our mm-hmm. generation. Yes, uh, I think it was you know somewhat well known, but it was not it wasn't the title that was going to propel us uh, along. <laughs> was it part of the contract you had to keep it, or did you just want to keep that title? Oh, we had to keep we kept the title. Not only that, I, I there was I believe um, Kurt's lawyer um, Don Farber was oh, legendary yeah. in the theater business. <laughs> And, and it's the title actually is Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless Him at the Rose mm-hmm. Water. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which I went, what? <laughs> Whereas now, I've, now everything I do is Disney's beauty. <laughs> right, right. So now I That's... feel like I'm cheated if I don't have somebody else's name above the title. How um, funny. Speaking of speaking of which, the uh, <laughs> the press release for the wonderful new recording of the Encores uh, production, which we're here to talk about, says that the score includes, among other things, some quote proto Disney ballads. But uh, I suppose is that only in retrospect that we <laughs> that we say? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely in retrospect. I don't know who said that. Um, and it's really early work, and um, there's a lot. I see a lot of threads actually in Rosewater. The later work that we did, but less so in the ballads and almost anything else. But mm. you know, in the voice, un- not unlike God's, or the fact that there are things that that fall from the rafter. The, the money, something green falls from the rafters at the end. Kind of is a is a thread to the little shop. Mm. Well, I re- I remember seeing the show at the WPA, and then I went to see it again when you moved to the Intermedia. Is that what it was called then? I'm not even sure. Intermedia, um, yeah. Intermedia. Yeah, and um, so uh, <laughs> you must have been very excited when the move was announced. Oh, it, it was wonderful. And then we, then we walked into the Intermedia, and here it is. It's a, it's a Broadway-sized house. Which, what is it, like 1,400 seats or something? Probably, yeah. And, and you walk in, and the only... The orchestra middle section is roped off <laughs> that, because it's, it was a three a contract, for, I guess, for three ninety nine. Ah, so, I don't so remember. This. When we were sold out, it looked like we were pathetically empty, uh, <laughs> which was a little bit weird. Um, mm. But it was, uh, you know, a, a great location uh, um, on Twelfth Street and Second Avenue, and um, it was a great theater. It was just, it was one of those situations where um, we're in a very large space and we were really in an off-Broadway contract. Part of the dilemma of Rosewater was that because we had a, a cast of 14, um, we were really kind of a Broadway-sized show with mm-hmm. an off-Broadway sensibility. And um, we never were able to reconcile that. You know, for a while, we, once we got our reviews, which were pretty good, we really wanted to try to move to Broadway, um, mm. but um, it wasn't. Uh, that never happened, and and that was a season I believe Sweeney Todd and Evita both came in that season. So it was uh-huh. a pretty tough competition. Uh huh. Now uh, what we haven't established is what God bless you, Mr. Rosewater is, and if there is anybody out there who hasn't read the book or seen the show or got the album, could you sum it up for us? Well, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater's. Um, Elliot Rosewater is the son of Senator Rosewater. He's the inheritor of the Rosewater fortune, who has the foundation that gives out money to to poets and to artists and to what they, you know what I think Elliot considers to be somewhat effete intellectuals. Um, <laughs> and 
much to the horror of his family, he really finds that meaningless and wants to go out in search of true Americans, um, which is something he, lear- he learned to value in the war because it, when he, he fought in, in Europe. And, and especially has this incredible fixation with firemen, which we mm. find out later is because he experienced the dreads and fire. But he um, goes off and, and ends up in the township of Rosewater, the county of Rosewater, uh, in the state of Indiana, and, um, and finds in those people there, and they're pathetic, sad, you know, they're just, there's un- unemployment is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the American dream has forgotten them. Um, it has a lot of resonance to kind of how what's our now our current dynamic. Sure. Um, sure. And he finds in those people people he considers deserving to be to be giving his fortune to. And once that happens, um, the family sends out a lawyer, Norman Mashari, um, to prove that they want to prove he's insane. They find some obscure Rosewater relatives who they want to give the fortune to instead, who who will be you know suitably. Um, obedient with how how they want to, you know, deal with the the, the money, and uh, I don't I, I don't have to tell the whole story, but basically at the end of the day, Elliot ends up just spreading the wealth among everyone, and it kind of you know for two, you know, hippie era young writers, it was a it's a perfect story to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and um, as you're you're so right about the fact that today it's more relevant because of the NEA cuts and all that that goes on there, and uh, more unemployment in the country, and um, leadership that we uh, certainly need. We need more uh, Mr. Rosewaters around, and fewer Senator Rosewaters around. So uh, I certainly understand that there. How did the Encores thing happen? Um, I believe it was Janine Sorry. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So. Do you know how she knew it? Uh, had she seen it in the Mufti that uh, was well, done? I don't. I'm not sure. I think she probably knew about it. We, you know, Danny Troub is a close mutual friend. I've known Jeanine for years, um, and I love her, and I, you know, admire her greatly. And I was. We had done um, Little Shop the summer before, the, you know, Little Shop at the Encores with Ellen Green, Jake Hall. I think maybe we talked about Rosewater then. Michael Mayer yeah. also. I mean, there's a lot of people who really felt like they wanted to dig into the trunk. Cause this, I always considered this kind of the gem in the trunk. And it was, it was strange at the time. We never had a cast album of Rosewater back in 79. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that was that there was, it, it, it sort of fell between the cracks as far as it was not a major label show. Mm-hmm. And the, the label at the time that was doing these kinds of shows, I'm trying to remember what they were called. It was Yeko, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bruce Yeko, right. Yeah. Bruce and Doris Yeko. Oh, yeah, OC, yeah. <clears throat> and we had you know, just a, <laughs> an altercation that happened with, with them when they actually came into a show with with a tape recorder. And, ah. And mm-hmm. manager Scott Shuka, I remember, grabbed Bruce's hand and said, <laughs> turn that off. <laughs> I don't know if that affected... In <laughs> any case, for, for the for the next thirty years, all that existed that people could could refer to at, when it was at Samuel French was um, uh, literally a, a, a live tape of the show uh, from the Intermedia. Mm. Wow! And having a cast album was huge on my bucket list of of things because to me this was 
the gem. This was the lost mm-hmm. gem, and it was, um, you know, especially with Howard gone, it's mm-hmm. not going to be anymore. And um, so the encore was was enormous, for, you know, for me. It's, sure. For everybody who loved, you know, Howard in my work and, and Rosewater. Who is the licensing house for Rosewater now? It's MTI. It's MTI, and uh, and since this recording is out and the production last July of sixteen, uh, has there been more interest in it? I I presume so. I haven't I haven't followed that mm-hmm. um, all that closely. I kind of wait till the you know tax time, and then I look at <laughs> what, <laughs> what's come in for what projects. And I'm blessed that I have you know a lot of projects floating around right now. I hope. God, I hope that that God bless you, Mr. Rosewater finds an audience. Yeah, after the intermediate, we had a production actually at the at um, the Rita stage, which was a wonderful production, and uh, and then after that, it was kind of radio silence. It, it nothing really happened past that. Howard and I moved on, you know, to um, to Little Shop of Horrors and didn't look back. Hmm. Hmm. Indeed. <laughs> So, uh, talking about Little Shop, uh, we've seen a few productions recently. Uh, how how is that uh, revisiting some of the uh, shows you you've done earlier in your career? Well, I haven't had to do the revisiting for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, there, the there there's uh, going to be apparently a another film, another movie yeah. adaptation yeah. of Little Shop at Warner Brothers. Um, when the, the subject of, of a Little Shop revival comes up, it is, Little Shop is one of those shows that has an amazing trove of lost songs. And, and we really opted for keeping it, especially Howard, keeping it very economical. Um, and, uh, and I think that was, that was the right thing to do. But the only temptation I'll ever have is, well, you know, we have this song that's sung in the waiting room of Oren's office when people are waiting to have <laughs> their dental care called the little dental music. And, ooh, couldn't we sneak that in? Or the second act ballad, We'll Have Tomorrow. And all of which are, you know, those both are, would fit right into the show. But Howard's original vision, which was what we're going to stay with, is is exactly the structure that you know we've had for the last, God, how many years now? 82? Let's do the math. 40? No. <laughs> it adds up. It adds up. Help. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I always say I liken myself to an architect. You know, we, we design the building and other people live in it. And so I, I don't really get actively involved with anything past what we originally created. If someone wants to um, try something new, and there have been all kinds of interesting Experiments. There was one, I think, in Australia where was it Seymour and Audrey too were played by the same person. It was like <laughs> I don't know how do, how the you know get it worked when they're you know, arguing back and forth. But um, I love it when you know I, I love when they did it encores when um, we had um, Cooper. What's uh, uh, Chuck Cooper's son? Oh God, I'm blocking on his is it Doug. I feel terrible. He was playing Audrey too, in, in a little, in a you know, little boy, little green suit, and then he grows, grows. <laughs> you actually see the face. I kind of love that. Um, and 
so yeah, it's really exciting to always to see how much Little Shop gets performed and and all the different creative impulses that people will put into it. I mean, there are obviously lines that you draw where you just say, "No, you can't do that." But um, and I share that responsibility with Howard's sister and and um, and, and uh, Sarah and also Bill Lauk. I mentioned at the top of the recording that um, you are just back from a trip to Europe. Were you working on something new there, or was it entertaining? Oh, it we have yeah, we're filming we're filming Aladdin mm-hmm. and the movie of Aladdin, Guy Ritchie's directing. And so I was, I've been just watching. I mean, once they start filming, there's not a whole lot for me to do other than to just kind of stand to the sidelines and, and enjoy watching the process or worry. Uh, and then after that, actually, we had this the rare instance of, of Janice and, and me taking a vacation. I said, okay, after that, let's just go and visit gardens. And we visited Scotland and Ireland and just there's the two of us and uh, hmm. really didn't check email very much and just had a nice, relaxing uh, trip. Well, it should have been relaxing, except I arranged for... I set up an itinerary that ends up being like a military invasion, unfortunately. And a lot of five in the morning getting up and going, we've got to make this plane to here. And Janet's going, this isn't a vacation. <laughs> but <laughs> we're home now, so that will take a vacation for our vacation. And uh, you're still playing tennis? I am playing tennis. I was playing tennis this morning, actually, and Stephen Schwartz is coming and playing with me and my friend Eric and Bob. And we have played up with him. Well, let's not keep you from that. Uh, we really appreciate you getting up on a Sunday morning and talking to us at Broadway Radio. Uh, the new uh, cast recording of Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, ah. is available at Ghostlight Records. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Alan Menken, thank you for coming back once again to Broadway well, thank Radio you for, and visiting thank with you us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Coca-Cola, it's forget the Moet and Chandon. Okay, let's see. Oh, there's some Pepsi. God, the whole bowl of cheese nips is gone. Mother Mary, the hams from Westphalia, and the lamb I had flown from Australia. Bet they'll want it well done or sliced thin on a bun with a sauce. Orange sauce. McDonald's sauce. No one wanted to go out with me on a- So this was an exciting week. Uh, Michael, your event over at 54 Below, where we discussed the anniversary of West Side Story uh, last week, tell us how that event went. Well, it, I'm happy to say it went really, really well. It was sold out, uh, which uh, I, I have to say that a lot of tickets were sold even before we announced the cast. So I think it's fair to say that uh, big surprise. Uh, this is one of the most beloved shows ever written, and people have an incredible affection for it. I did want to do something to celebrate the actual 60th anniversary on Tuesday, the 26th, because I, I, I think that's obviously a historic occasion. And uh, we did several big chunks of the score of the show uh, no dance numbers <laughs> but uh mm. lots of lots of the the most famous songs with a wonderful cast Ashley Marie Tyler Milliron Leah Horowitz Natalie Stores Natalie Douglas uh and John and Matthew Drinkwater and Matthew Ward was our musical director and we had as our special guest 
Harvey Evans, who was in the show not only on Broadway, but also in the film version. And we also had Joey McNeely, who is the director choreographer of a global tour of the show that has been out for some years already and is just continuing because people, again, can't get enough of this show um, in in Europe as, as well as, well as uh, in the United States. And... Um, as it turned out, we had a completely surprise guest. Carol Lawrence was there, and I did not know that. Carol Lawrence, the original Maria, was there, and I didn't know it until we were bowing at the end, and one of the cast, uh, Natalie Douglas, noticed her and said, Michael, Carol Lawrence is here. <laughs> so I announced her, and she came up and spoke uh, a little bit, and the crowd just absolutely loved her. They, they went nuts. Um, it was a really, really wonderful evening, and always always uh, a pleasure to hear those songs uh, when done as beautifully as they were by the, the cast that we assembled and I just you know th this is as I, I think I mentioned last uh, week 2018 is the centennial year of the birth of both Leonard Bernstein and Leonard and uh, Jerome Robbins and actually 2017 is the centennial year of Arthur Lawrence uh, so it's uh, it's lots of anniversaries and commemorations. Um, it's, this is a good time to to really look back and at what this show did uh, for musical theater and, and how it really was so groundbreaking in so many ways. And so that, yeah, it, it was a memorable night. And I understand that Peter... The following evening was <laughs> at uh, an event which sounds equally, if not even more memorable. Well, uh, the event uh, that I went to was the 60th anniversary of their reading the reviews, uh, which let them know <laughs> that they were going to be um, in business for a while. Uh, not that all the reviews were raves, but there was certainly enough to propel that famous 732 performance run. So what had happened was Martin Charnin, uh, who was um, in the original production, uh, who um, I may have mentioned this before, and if so, I apologize, but I've always wondered if because he was in the G. Officer Krupke number where he had to sing the lyric Leaping Lizards, if that um, inspired him to write Annie. But anyway, um, he was in the show originally, and um, he brought with him uh, a whole bunch of people, and that included Grover Dale, the original Snowboy, Marilyn Trono, Clarice, um, Ronnie Lee Nibbles, uh, George Marcy, who was Pepe, but also the Bernardo understudy, uh, Tony Modente, who was Arab, Leanne Plain, who was Margarita, uh, Jamie Sanchez, Chino, David Winters, Baby John, uh, who didn't look like a baby anymore, believe me, and of course, uh, <laughs> both Carol Lawrence and uh, Cheetah Rivera, the original Maria and Anita. What was so interesting, though, is that um, Charnin decided that the fairest way to do this was to introduce everybody alphabetically and sit alphabetically. Well, the luck of the draw, what turned out was that um, Ch uh, Cheetah Rivera would be sitting next to Tony Mordente. Uh, there was nobody between M and R. And um, they were married once from 57 to 66. And um, the thing about this was that uh, you have to wonder about, you know, ex-wives and ex-husbands being together, you know. But the moment Cheetah Rivera sat down, she gave Tony Modente an affectionate um, little tap on his leg. Um, so um, I guess there were no hard feelings from the marriage. But later, when uh, Charnin asked 
um, what did you audition with? What, what, and um, he said, um, uh, Five Foot Two, Eyes of Blue, meaning the song, Has Anybody Seen My Gal? And if you know that old chestnut, it seems like a very <laughs> odd choice to be auditioning for West Side Story, this cutting-edge musical, you know, which uh, has very little um, to do with uh, Has Anybody Seen My Gal? Um, so... Uh, Trounin says, oh, could you do it for us now? And Cheetah Rivera immediately snapped, no, he can't. And uh, so there's nothing like an ex-wife, I'll tell you. She also pointed out that um, <laughs> the famous story about the West Side Story rehearsals was, of course, that Jerome Robbins made them into gangs. The kids playing the Jets were not allowed to deal with the kids playing the Sharks. He really wanted mm -hmm. to get that enemy feeling. And uh, for that matter, the girl playing anybody's, Lee Theodore, wasn't able to eat lunch with either one of them because she was a member of neither group. She had to eat alone. But as she pointed out, um, it's so funny that she, a shark girl, wound up marrying a jet boy. Um, so <laughs> it, may, it may have worked uh, in terms of um, keeping them apart during uh, the show, but it couldn't keep uh, Cheetah Rivera and Tony Mordente apart from... Uh, um, being together for nine years. They were together till um, 1966. Uh, so, um, by the way, I just che now checked. They, uh, Cheetah and Tony were married on December 1st, 1957. So that was about four months into the run of West Side Story. And of, and of course, they had a daughter, Lisa Mordente. So uh, Tony, I, I believe, now lives on the West Coast. But I, I as far as I know, they they still have a, you know, a, a very good relationship and they do have their, that, their daughter. Uh, in fact, Cheetah mentioned um, hmm. Lisa, um, and saying he gave me this wonderful daughter. So, uh, so that was nice. But she also stressed, as she did in her show, her one woman show in 2005, that Peter Gennaro and not Jerome Robbins created the choreography for every shark dance. And Charnin backed her up on that by saying that while many have assumed that um, Gennaro was the mere assistant choreographer, mm -hmm. uh, he was actually the associate choreographer, and in fact, his billing says co-choreographer. But, you know, sometimes that happens that people really want to lionize one person, um, and um, that happened well, there. I, Go ahead. I can interrupt here for a second. Uh, Google has a new section on their site called Arts and Culture, and they have a special presentation on Peter, Peter Gennaro, the West Side Story, that you haven't heard. Uh, and it's got the contract between Peter Gennaro and Jerome Robbins on what they do and do not do and what the billing is and and how it came about to be. And they have great interviews with uh, Peter's kids uh, mm -hmm. about this. It's a really interesting 10 or 15 minutes uh, that you can spend on the site there to understand a, a little bit deeper about uh, that relationship between Peter and Jerome Robbins. I just saw that yesterday. Somebody uh, emailed it to me. It's it's really quite something. I haven't gotten watch, to watch the whole thing yet. But yes, and when, when I discussed that with Joey McNeely at, at our event at Feinstein's 54 Below on, on Tuesday, he said that he didn't know <laughs> uh, the extent of Peter Gennaro's contribution to the show until Cheetah. I, again, everyone credits Cheetah with really, really That's bringing true. home that yep. point. Yep, yeah. yep. I mean, and the way she said it in her show in 2005, I mean, the look in her eyes said, and don't you doubt me for a second. I am telling you this is what really happened. Uh, and, you know, she gave a definitive nod saying, oh, yeah, 
Oh, yeah, it was Peter Gennaro. So um, Grover Dale uh, talked about the fact that um, in 1959, Charnin, who was transitioning from being an actor to a writer, uh, was doing sketches and songs for uh, an off-Broadway show that was going to be called Fallout. And he said, uh, Grover, I need $1,000. And Grover said, okay, I'll loan it to you. Um, the show ran only 31 performances, so uh, Grover said he had to wait on uh, 18 years until Annie opened to get paid back. Um, so that was kind of interesting. He said, oh, and I had to go to the stage door and collect it. Um, what he did mention, though, I checked uh, Fallout, um, and what he didn't mention was that he got a part in the show. So um, I, I guess that uh, Charnin had something to do with that. So um, that was uh, kind of interesting as well. Um, David, uh, the... Um, uh, David Winters, who played Baby John, talked about the fact that um, he thought he did terribly on his audition. He said, well, that's it. I'm not going to get the show. And as it turned out, he was the first one actually signed of, of any of the um, kids in the show. So uh, so there's a moral there about don't doubt yourself because you, you never know what they're looking for and what's going to happen there. So uh, so that was kind of interesting as well. Jaime... <clears throat> um, I Sanchez playing uh, Chino had a very interesting story, I thought. He was working in a Howard Johnson's. That's what he was doing, working in a Howard Johnson's. (laughs) That was going to be his life. And somebody came in, uh, a casting person, and liked the way he looked and said, are you an actor? Assuming that, you know, so many people who are trying to be actors do work in the food service industry. And he said, yes. (laughs) He wasn't an actor. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't intend to be an actor, but <laughs> when given the question, he was smart enough to say yes, and he wound up being Chino. You know, uh, they liked uh, his look. They liked the way he uh, – he said, I learned to be an actor by being in West Side Story. I wasn't uh, up till that point. So really it was a fascinating event, and Michael, like yours, packed to the rafters um, at St. Luke's. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's no question that there is, as you say, such affection for this show. And um, for so many of us, it was, um, you should pardon the expression, a gateway drug to um, to musical theater, as, as, especially <laughs> in my generation when that movie came out, because um, so many of us were teenagers then. And uh, it was a great date movie and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and there was enough violence in it to make the boys happy. So um, really, uh, West Side Story is responsible for a lot of people being aware of the Broadway musical um, that they wouldn't have been had it not happened. And um, as everybody always says, um, as well-received and successful as the stage show was, it was the movie that put it into the stratosphere. So um, so we're very grateful to that movie for doing that and keeping it in the consciousness. And I don't know about you guys, but I still watch that movie today, and I think it's terrific. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's move forward into our our next review. Um Clockwork Orange has shown up on this side of the pond on stage. Uh, when was Clockwork Orange originally released? Was it the same time as West Side Story? Or was it just after it? Uh, it well, uh, the book um, was written in 1962, um, and the movie came out in 71. And then in 87, uh, Anthony Burgess, who has since died, uh, adapted it into the play that we're seeing now. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that it's uh, exactly the way that he envisioned it. It may or may not be. I, I don't know. But um, it, it's it's almost done like a story theater uh, situation here. But there are interesting parallels with West Side mm. Story because we are talking about gangs here, you know, and mm. um, 
the thing is that um, the, the gangs, uh, the gangs in Clockwork Orange, are far more severe than uh, the Jets and Sharks, um, because the Jets and Sharks uh, have an agenda. The the kids in Clockwork Orange are simply mentally ill sadists. I mean, they're yeah. crazier than today's news. Um, so th- there's a big difference there. They're just going out to cause trouble. Um, one of the most brilliant lyrics in West Side Story, as far as I'm concerned, is a very simple one. And that is in the quintet when the Jets say, well, they began it. And the Sharks say, well, they began it. And both of them really believe that. Both of them really believe the other uh, gang started it, and uh, we'll never know the truth. But although I think we can suspect that the uh, Jets started it, but that's another story. So, um, so there's that parallel that we're talking about gangs, um, and uh, they actually go out and rape somebody, um, and not in a symbolic dance the way the Jets do with Anita. I mean, this this is far more hard hitting than West Side Story ever could have dreamed of being back in those Eisenhower years. So, um, so it's really uh, quite quite uh, severe to see that. And um, the famous thing about uh, West Side Story's language, which Martin Charnin brought up, you know, frabba jabba, cracko jacko, that type of mm. stuff. Um, you know, so, uh, Alex in, in, in Clockwork Orange, who's the leader of the gang have uh, created their own language too, but, uh, they, um, liberally use the famous four letter words that begin with F and C. So, um, you know, and compare that to the jet, um, action who says, where the devil are they? Meaning the sharks. He's sounds more like Henry Higgins. So what, what I found interesting, West Side Story had choreography and Clockwork Orange has a dance captain. Yes, but he is billed below the position of fight captain, which really shows you where the show is at. You know what I mean? So yes, there are some moves that can uh, pass for choreography, but what we're really dealing with here is fight direction. So, um, so that was uh, something. Don't look for the famous song that you heard in the movie, mm. Singing in the Rain. You know I mean? It's not there. Um, and that's conspicuously absent, but there's a lot of music in this. Um, a lot of techno takes on things like um, uh, Beethoven. So, um, so, so anyway, um, it, it, it works, um, on its own terms. Um, and I do think it's, uh, if, if you like this type of thing, you're certainly going to like it. Um, it's in the same theater where naked boys singing was for all those years. And what you hear is semi naked boys, uh, stinging, let's say. Um, so also there are seats on the stage on the left and right sides of the stage. So if you really want to uh, get close to, uh, seeing the guy's skin, you can do that. And I'm telling you, uh, these guys have veins protruding through their skin because they're so angry and all that goes with that. So um, what happens after that, of course, has nothing to do with West Side Story because what we're talking about is, uh, yes, there are villains uh, on the streets, but there are also villains in the medical community. And um, that's what's going to happen here. You're going to find out that um, Alex's life is considered expendable to guys who are interested in finding out a little bit more about people's psyche and all that goes with that. So who are the real monsters here? Um, There are plenty. And uh, don't look for much of a love story in this version of Clockwork Orange. (laughs) All right, Michael, what did you think? 
Yeah, it's also in the same theater where Alter Boys was, but this is a very different, <laughs> very, very different type of entertainment. Uh, this production came from England. It's directed by Alexandra Spencer-Jones, and they brought over the lead um, from uh, from across the pond, John o. Davies, who's gotten a lot of press uh, primarily for the his incredible body. He's talked about how he felt it was really important for the character. And uh, of course, they're, they're also playing it up uh, in terms of, <laughs> you know, as a selling point because sex does sell. Uh, it, it's interesting, though, to um, and, and actually the the rest of the cast who are, are I believe, all Americans uh, are uh, are all in incredible shape as well. Um, that that seems to be uh, it felt that that was important for these for this gang who are called the Droogs, by the way. That's what they're called. Um, and so I, I don't know how much uh, you know it, it, one can enjoy the the, the uh, aesthetically their bodies, considering a lot of the the very intense. Uh, violence that's occurring. Uh, it's interesting what Peter said. Uh, the 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 violence is quite stylized and choreographed, but that doesn't mean that it's not still hard hitting. Uh, this is an extremely intense show. I uh, it's interesting to me that it's playing. Uh, it's overlapping a little bit uh, with the stage production of 1984. Mm. Uh, on Broadway because they're both set in a dystopian England sometime in the future. Um, and they have something else in common. Both have a lengthy scene where the main character undergoes aversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in 1984, it, it, I mean, there were many differences. In 1984, the, uh, the aversion therapy is uh, in, uh, in terms of getting um, Winston to toe the line in terms of, uh, you know, being uh, pledging his allegiance to Big Brother and the party rather than uh, fighting against them. In uh, Clockwork Orange, the, the, the aversion therapy is to uh, turn – Alex away from violence and and uh, they do that by showing him these images well well uh, this disgusting images and uh, and um, by while while um, locking his eyes open so they can he can't look away it's really it's really pretty pretty intense um, the the language that they speak uh, this this jargon they speak is called NADSAT. That's the name that uh, that Burgess gave it. And interestingly enough, it's uh, it's a mixture of English and Russian. So I guess you can draw, draw your own conclusions as to what <laughs> that indicates as far as um, where Russia stands in 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 the future in terms of uh, you know control of of England and presumably look at this point uh, you know America as well um, I, I thought some of the um, slang sounded Shakespearean in, in some in some of the moments early on in the play so that was interesting to me uh, but this is um, quite a kinetic high 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 energy show well, one of those shows that to me it's almost impossible to imagine that these people do it eight times a week um i think even you know uh, once they get in that incredible shape it, it's probably quite easy to stay there because 
the the calorie expenditure per performance must be tremendous. Um, I I would absolutely see that. Oh, you know what I went, wanted to mention. In a way, I I suppose I'm on. One could say I'm unqualified to review this because I never read the book, and I never saw the movie. And in fact, I realized I don't think I could have seen the movie until quite a few years after it came out because I was 14 when it came out. And uh, if I remember correctly, was it not rated X? I think it was. Yeah, I think it I was. Think so. I think I, I literally would not have been able to get into the theater to see it. Uh, and then after that, uh, it wasn't exactly the kind of movie that necessarily would have turned up in a bunch of, rev you know, revival houses <laughs> and certainly not where I was living um, on Staten Island. Uh, and then, of course, that, that was many quite a few years before the home video uh, revolution. So I couldn't have rented it. Uh, um, so anyway, my, my point is that I, I, I couldn't have caught up with it for a while, and I never did anyway. Uh, so one could say, well, you, well, you, you know, you, you're not really qualified to review this. But on the other hand, of course, these things need to stand on their own. Uh, mm -hmm. And so in, in that sense, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine for me to, to say that I, I got all of the story, every, uh, all of the action was clear to me, despite um, the stylization. Uh, also, uh, it's worth noting, there are no uh, women in the cast, uh, even though there are uh, a few female characters, they, they are all played by men. And that was a, apparently a, a very conscious decision on the part of the director. Um, this is a, a, quite a testosterone filled evening uh like no, no other show i've seen and i would absolutely recommend it but of course you have to be you know be prepared for um for great intensity and make sure you're in the mood for that on the night when you go all right so that's uh clockwork orange and um we'll have a link to that in the show notes Peter, you got down to New York Theater Workshop where you saw the production of Mary Jane. So tell us about that. Yeah, this is a hard-hitting show, too, but in a very different way. And one of the reasons it's um, so powerful is the fact that the uh, woman who's playing Mary Jane, Carrie Coon, who we uh, may remember from uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, when she was playing uh, Honey, here she's uh, playing somebody who is um, <clears throat> the mother of a child who was born much too early, and um, he did not die, but um, he's certainly dying a slow death here, and to the point at which we never see him in the room that used to be her bedroom, and uh, now she sleeps on the couch in the living room because he needs that entire room, and he needs 24-hour care, and... What we see is that she really has come to terms with this, that when you have a child like this, it becomes your life. And after a while, it becomes something you don't even think about in any type of atypical, horrifying way. We we see it, but she's very matter-of-fact about telling the um, healthcare uh, associates what has to be done and uh, the scares that happen that aren't so scary anymore because there have been a lot of times when you really think he's going over the edge and uh, he's not. Um, so she also talks about the fact that her husband uh, left because he couldn't stand it and she feels bad for him. Uh, because he's not strong enough to do it, but she is. And this is what it's about, about the highs uh, that are very few and the lows that are 
astonishingly many that um, she goes through in Harry doing this. It's a tremendously moving play because it makes us realize that our lives are much easier than this woman. Uh, and uh, the, the things we complain about, like James, you were saying earlier, first world problems, you know, um, well, uh, these are very definite first world problems, but um, of the highest extremes. So, so it's, it's an intermissionless show, and it's um, more than 90 minutes long. And while it's harrowing in its own way, we take our cue from her. And we really admire what she's doing so much that it isn't as painful as you might think that this description sounds of it. So that's the miracle of Amy Herzog's play. And Ann Kaufman's direction is terrific. Carrie Coon, magnificent. And uh, so is everyone else. The problem, of course, is that because you are dealing with uh, the healthcare associates at home and then the boy has to go to the hospital, and uh, you deal with different people, different nurses there, and doctors there. The people you saw as the healthcare associates have to play; they have to double and do those parts too. And that's that's too bad. When there's a movie of this, I suspect there will be because it's an awfully potent property. Um, we will have different people playing it, and it'll be far more effective. Because um, Brenda Wheely, I guess I don't know how it's pronounced. W H W E H L E uh, plays a uh, superintendent in the first scene of the play and then comes as a, a Buddhist monkus. I don't know, is that what we call uh, But a Buddhist um, who's there to give help. And she is magnificent in that scene where she says all the right things to this, to Mary Jane, whose kid is really on the ropes now. So they're all wonderful. And um, as I'm sure there are people saying, oh, I don't want to see anything like this. And I understand that fully. Uh, were you to go, you'd be surprised at how you're, you'd be able to take it. Uh, because Amy Herzog uh, knows from this experience to some degree, because I know she has a child with Sam Gold who um, has had his problems. Um, I don't know what they are. They may not be the same problems we're hearing about in this play. They may be exactly the same problems we're hearing about in this play. But um, we do get the impression she knows of what she speaks. All right. Uh, so that is playing down at uh, New York Theater Workshop, and Mary Jane runs through the end of October. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Peter, you also saw Desperate Measures at the York Theater Company, so tell us about that. It's terrific beyond belief. I mean, it's based on Measure for Measure, which is known as one of Shakespeare's problem plays. Uh, is that a euphemism for meaning they're not so good? Well, problem plays really does mean that the, 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 is it a comedy, is it a drama, you know, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Well, this is definitely a comedy, a uh, musical comedy, uh, straight out, and it's set in the old wild, wild west. Now, if you know Measure for Measure, you know that Isabella has... Uh, a brother Claudia who's really in trouble and um, she has to go plead on his behalf and uh, in doing so uh, the the Duke uh, who she's talking to says yeah I'll let him go if you sleep with me this is still part of it here but um, <laughs> I'll tell you David Friedman and Peter Kellogg have solved the problems and Peter Kellogg has done an especially amazing job because yes he wrote lyrics that are terrific um, uh, you know I'm going to say they rhyme perfectly but more, more to the point he's structured the book in a very Shakespearean way by using rhyming iambic pentameter so uh, he had to do a lot of rhyming 
on this show, and he did it and did it very skillfully. The uh, lyrics, so to speak, of the dialogue are just as entertaining as the lyrics in the song. And David Friedman knows exactly the type of song that this show needs. Um, <laughs> there's a tango in it because that's exactly the type of mood that should be uh, happening here. So it really is tremendously um, entertaining and I am hoping upon hope upon hope upon hope that uh, it can uh, be a neighbor of Clockwork Orange at New World Stages or uh, show up at um, the West Side or something like that. It definitely, definitely deserves to move. Um, And a a new actress who is totally unknown to me, um, her name is Emma Degerstedt, I guess, D-E-G-E-R-S-T-E-D-T, um, and she is so wonderfully winning as um, the nun. Uh, yeah, uh, I should have mentioned that, but uh, Isabella is uh, a member of the um, clergy. Um, as the nun who uh, has to go and plead for her brother and is really shocked when um, she um, is given this deal to uh, to make. Um, well, this is a young Barbara Cook. I While watching her, I said, wow, she'd be great and she loves me. Wow, she'd be a great Marion the Librarian. And I really think this um, young woman is going to have a tremendous career. And bless Bill Castellino, the director, for introducing us to her. Uh, I do believe this is um, it, it's her first part of significance, whether or not um, she has done much in the city before. But, um, but it is is her first um yeah she says here in her um in the playbill she's delighted to be making her off-broadway debut well not as delighted as we are to see her so um she really is quite quite fine but it's an excellent cast excellent 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 and i especially uh liked nick wyman an actor i've been a fan of since i saw a hasty pudding show in 1972 (laughs) um playing the governor not the duke but the governor of this of arizona which is still a territory at this point so um but they're all wonderful. Um, speaking of She Loves Me, um, Gary Marachek, not spelled the same way as um, the character in uh, She Loves Me, but I wonder if he took his name from that, um, plays a, a priest who uh, isn't that all that religious. And Laura Molina is tremendous as Bella Rose, um, the local uh, tramp uh, showgirl. Now, in... Um, in Measure for Measure, yes, what the point is, um, what somebody figures out is, let's make the room dark when um, Isabella is going to sleep with the Duke. Um, and what we'll do is do a switch and have this uh, other girl who who is no stranger to carnal knowledge uh, fill in for her, and the Duke won't be any the wiser. What's wonderful here, this is just one example of the imagination that they do, is when they tell the showgirl from the local saloon, who also makes money on the side by uh, turning tricks, that um, she's going to have to pretend to be a nun. She says, oh, I have a nun's habit. You know, I, I use that in my line of work. You know, I think that is tremendously clever um, because as we, if, if we didn't know that uh, there are some men who enjoy um, fantasizing they're making it with nuns, uh, Sondheim certainly taught us that in his magnificent song, I Never Do Anything Twice. So anyway, we get the impression that she's done it more than twice. So a delightful, delightful show at the York, and I hope this isn't the, remotely the end of it because it deserves a tremendously long life. Wow, that's a huge endorsement there. So you have uh, a couple of weeks to come check it out, uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, 
Peter, you saw something called <laughs> Say Something Bunny. Uh, what is that? <laughs> what is it? What is it? I have no idea what it is. This is the strangest <laughs> thing I have ever been to. And ironically enough, seriously, um, I keep track of my uh, theater going, and it was my 11,000th show. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I am telling you that uh, I've never seen anything like it and don't expect to see anything like it again. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. All right. 511 West 20th Street, um, next to two art galleries. You walk up a flight of stairs, you're in a room. You're not in a theater, you're in a room. There's a circular table like a conference table, but a donut. It's, um, the inside is not uh, wood. Uh, it's where a, a young woman, who's terrific, by the way, uh, will be telling a story that night. And what a story. Um, also, uh, there are music stands. It, it, first come, first serve. The person who gets there first gets to sit at the table, and the table is filled. Uh, you sit at the music stands, which is where I was relegated. Okay, no hard feelings. Anyway, so what has happened is that somebody found uh, in like a junk shop or something like that a wire recorder. Before they were tape recorders, they were wire recorders. And for a while, mm -hmm. they coexisted much the way that VHS and Beta um, coexisted for a couple of years until VHS took off. Well, this was one of the last wire recorders sold. Um, and uh, in fact, we will learn that the person who bought it regrets buying the wire recorder rather than the um, a tape recorder. Why do we learn that? Well, when the person found this in the junk shop, there were two rolls of wire, which they played. And... Hmm. And uh, what it was is that when the guy bought the tape, rec uh, the wire recorder, he brought it to his family's house and simply taped them, uh, wired them. What, what do you call it? Anyway, recorded them. <laughs> That's looking for. Okay. So what you're essentially doing is listening to home movies without seeing anything. Now, uh, let's go to the death of a salesman. Do you recall the scene in death of a salesman where Willie is going to Howard? Uh, I think it's Howard's office to, um, Oh yes. And he's got a tape recorder there and he's, he's thrilled with it. And he says, listen to this. And everybody's saying things like, I don't know what to say. And you know, the kid is uh, just saying nonsense syllables and all that kind of stuff. That's what this is. You are listening, um, for, uh, about mm, 45 minutes in each act because there are two rolls of tape. One was, and, and the point is, that the person who um, found these tapes said, you know, let's find out who made these tapes. So at one point they're talking about the fact that, yeah, on January 16th, we're going to go see Fanny. Okay. So uh, the woman looked up um, on uh, maybe IBDB, whatever it was, to find out when Fanny was running. And she certainly found out that Fanny was running uh, between 1954 and 1956. So, okay. So therefore, uh, we know that it's between those dates. And somebody mentions that Cornell beat Penn State in football that day. So she looked up the score and... <laughs> Anyway, so this is what it is. I mean, and she stops the, the wires every now and then to say, okay, here's what we learned. And I 
guess some people found this fascinating because the woman next to me did at intermission uh, when we were going to tape two, which was done a few years later. Um, she uh, said to me, isn't this something that this woman wanted to know about these tapes and did all this research? Yes, it is. It is. My hat is off to this woman. Tremendously, tremendously successful in um, doing all the research and narrowing it down and finding out all this kind of business. But good Lord, sitting there and listening to people prattle on and uh, just uh, ordinary conversation, um, it, it doesn't make me sing that's entertainment. What can I tell you? You know, so I thought I thought it was really a chore. And they give you a script so you can follow along because, of course, you know, because these are primitive uh, recordings, you know, from whenever – you got your first tape recorder and did this in your house, you know, the sound isn't very good. So you have to listen to muffled sound. So that's why they give you a script. And believe me, when you see that it's 93 pages long and you're already bored on page 13, you know, you know, you're in for a tough night. So, um, so it, it, it it really was so bizarre, but then it got more bizarre. It got more bizarre (laughs) for me, for me, because they find out that the guy who make this wire uh, recording turned out to be a lyricist and a book writer, and he wrote the off-Broadway show Stag Movie. Now, you are pardoned if you have never heard of Stag Movie, which was done in 1970. I mean, I was amazed because I, I do remember Stag Movie being done. I did not see it. Uh, but um, and, you know, it was it was reasonably successful at the Gate Theater um, because you would expect it would only run um, a night considering the reviews, which indeed she shows us the headlines of the reviews. And um, what she doesn't say, and I wish she would, um, because I did some research afterwards in, in Dan Dietz's wonderful book about off-Broadway, that on opening night, they, the house was empty, and so they decided to paper it, and so they invited this gay group to come. And um, the gay group was very offended by what the, the way gays were portrayed in stag movies, and they started a riot, and the police had to be called. <laughs> I mean, no, another opening, another show? I don't think so. So anyway, um, so but anyway, David Newberg... That's N-E-W-B-U-R-G-E, wrote the book and the lyrics, and um, that's who made this recording. And he did have a bit of a career. And what was so interesting to me was that Jack Urbont um, wrote the music, which I knew before I went in because I know Jack a little. Uh, He's still with us. And um, that day, that very day, not knowing this was coming, I played All in Love, which was his off-Broadway musical from 1960 Love, which has a terrific score. I'm so sorry it's not on CD, not officially anyway. And um, it's a terrific score. It's a musical version of The Rivals. Dom DeLuise was in it, uh, one of his first um, building blocks in his career. So what a what a coincidence. And while you see Jacques' name on the, um, on the reviews and um, all that kind of stuff, um, I, I went up to the, the young woman afterwards and said, um, have you been in touch with Jack Urbont? And uh, she said, no, we can't find him. And this was a dilemma for me. Do I tell her that um, I have his phone number and she can call him? But 
what if she invites him to the show and he has to sit through this? I mean, you know, you know, um, may, uh, obviously he'd find it, the second part of it interesting because that's when they talk about stag movie. You know, but my God, um, you know, putting anybody through this experience is something I wouldn't wish on anybody. So, um, uh, uh, but I gave her the phone number and we'll see what happens. So um, we'll see if uh, Jack curses me uh, till the end of his days for getting him involved in this. Uh, but he might have some interesting stories that she can incorporate into it. And um, <clears throat> believe me, um, the interesting stories are what makes this at, at least bearable at times as opposed to what you're actually hearing from the wire recording. Wow. <laughs> so Say Something Bunny uh, is <laughs> over near the river, uh, 511 West 20 in the Undo Project space. Uh, gotten great reviews from people like Elizabeth Vincentelli and uh, Peter Felicia. <laughs> and uh, it is playing through January 28th, 2018, uh, been extended again. Uh, they have an interesting thing on their website where um, they have a waiting list in case you want to see. It seems to be sold out on many nights uh, that you can get on an online waiting list in case you want to see it. And um, Peter, we should have a cake with 11,000 candles on it. <laughs> So. Fine with me. I never turned down a piece. I never thought about how much I weighed when there was still one piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, coming up um, in many people's uh, theater viewing futures is Anything Can Happen in the Theater, the songs of Mar Yeston, which is playing over at the Triad with uh, a stellar cast. Michael, why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, I just wanted to mention this because it's coming up and it's initially anyway only scheduled for 12 performances, uh, a review of, of Maury Yeston's songs called Anything Can Happen in the Theater, the songs of Maury Yeston, conceived and directed by Gerard Alessandrini at the Triad uh, beginning October 4th. And the cast is Robert Cuccioli, Jill Pace, Justin Keyes, Alex Getlin, and Michael Maliakal. So I am uh, planning to go on Wednesday and just wanted to to uh, give people a heads up on that because, as I said, uh, you know, of course, it it may extend. I don't know what the situation is there. But um, but initially just scheduled for 12 performances and more Yeston is uh, – is um, I'm sure someone who many of our listeners admire for for his wonderful musical theater works and I'm and uh, from what I understand you you're going to get to hear um, well known as well as uh, far less familiar songs in this show. Wow, that is that's exciting. Um, we'll have to get a review from you next week on that to uh, follow up on that after put a note for myself to remind me for that so before we wrap up for the day and get to trivia i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to itunes for you of course you don't have to listen to us in itunes you can listen to us in many ways one of the ways is the stitcher app which is an application for your iphone your blackberry your android device iHeartRadio places itunes google play tune in um, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can listen to us there. Uh, the show notes at broadervideo.com contains links to some of the things we talked about today. 
And then we also come upon our trivia. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was, a commercial comedy opened on Broadway in the 70s and didn't last too long. The company that uh, it mentioned in its title has uh, been steadily failing, and so it's been retitled when it's done in Stockton Community Theater. It kept the first three words of its title, but has replaced the last two in favor of a more successful company. What was the original name of the play, and what is it now? Well, this was a play called Murder at the Howard Johnson's, which lasted uh, a weekend uh, back in 1979. And um, because Howard Johnson's has fallen on terribly hard times, uh, now when it's done, it tends to be called Murder at the Best Western, because that's another chain that's pretty analogous to Howard Johnson. Jack Leshner got it. Now, Robert... Lobiondo got that it was murder at the Howard Johnson's, but he didn't know about the new title. Uh, that was true of John Moss, too. Um, he knew murder at the Howard Johnson's and did not know Best Western, but did say, what I really hope is that the new title will be murder at the Mar-a-Lago. Well, anyway... <laughs> This week's question, in the 2,662 musicals that have been produced on Broadway, only one character has ever had the first name of Merwin. Not Merlin. There are three musicals we know that he appeared in, Connecticut Yankee, Camelot, and Need We Add Merlin. But Merwin, only one. Which one? Wow. Not Merwin Ford. Yeah, I was, that's an actor. That's an actor. <laughs> I'm talking about it's a character. Yeah, I know. And I was like, I didn't know he had his own show. <laughs> All right. So, if by the you way, know, I yeah. can I mention I saw Murder at the Howard Johnson's the, uh, uh, oh, in one of its four performances. Well, mm -hmm. uh, ten previews, I suppose. Maybe I saw a preview, and it was a three-person cast. Amazingly, Bob Dishy, Tony Roberts, and Joyce Van Patten. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was there too. Yep. <laughs> Didn't we just talk about Howard Johnson's in another segment? I don't recall. Hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you're a listener and you know any, uh, you have a clue of what Peter's talking about <laughs> with the Merwin question, uh, email us at triviabroadreview.com, and we'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. In 1861, my great-grandfather Noah was handed by his dad a pioneer. 600 acres not too far from here. He founded factories for making saws. And so he'd not be at the mercy of steelmakers, he bought a steel mill. And so he'd not be at the mercy of coal miners, he bought a coal mine. And so he'd not be at the mercy of money men, he bought a bank. In 1881, my great-grandfather married. He found a woman who had very big ones. About 400,000 very big ones. Begat the Samuel, who entered politics. And Sam the front page of the major Republican purchased a granary. And Sam the front page of the major Republican purchased a newspaper. And Sam the front page of the major Republican often encouraged local militias to shoot into crowds of striking workers. In 1899, my granddad unrepentant and heedless of the charming things he'd done, decided he would bless us with a son. Begat he father, the worthy senator. Begat he me, 
Who marched to war? Who marched to Germany in 1944? Bavaria. A clarinet factory. Supposedly infested by a hedgehog of SS troops. They're in there, men. I'll toss the grenade in the window. And climb in first. You follow. I step over a body. I fall over another body. Smoke. I can't see. I'm face to face with a German in a gas mask. I do what I've been taught. I jam my knee into the man's groin, drive my bayonet into his throat, smash his jaw with my rifle butt, and then I hear an American sergeant, cease fire! He's yelling. Hold your fire, you guys! Jesus Christ, these aren't soldiers. They're firemen. I'd killed three unarmed firemen. And the one I'd bayoneted, when they got his gas mask off, he couldn't have been more than 14 years old. My God, I didn't know. I didn't mean to. Not me. Not me. But it was me. Yes, it was me. And out the window of this bus, I think I see. I do. I see. A firestorm consuming Indianapolis. Igniting everything The Holiday Inn The hot dog stands and dodges Gas stations, motor lodges The day that couldn't be Has finally been A firestorm consuming It's his turn. Stop the bus. Please stop the bus. Stop the bus. Please stop the bus. Stop the bus. Stop the bus. Stop the bus. bus. 